What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? That's the question we ask every day at this time, and we'd love to hear your answers. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985, and you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price, Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky. And Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, Dr. David Andrews, how are you? Jack, fine. How about you? Terrific, thank you. Got an email here from Moses in Phoenix, and he says, You've piqued my interest in relics, altars, and revelation, and I have enjoyed learning about church history. My question is this, we're not allowed to quote-unquote spread our ashes. I understand that some entire bodies are underneath churches or altars, but not always the case. How does this rule apply to relics, whether they be in or under an altar or just one presented for veneration? Yeah, thanks. Well, the last uh, prepositional phrase, presented for veneration, is the key difference, right? Because... When when the church disallows um, cremation and distributing of the ashes, it's it's because that is performed from the church's view for a superstitious reason, right? Um, the, the body is not a kind of keepsake, um, and even less is it something that is uh, ephemeral to to take no account of. Um, because of the Christian's union with Christ. The body is literally a member of Christ and will participate in the resurrection. And so the veneration of the bodies of the saints is of an entirely different order in terms of our disposition towards the body. It's of an entirely different order from, say, you know, scattering someone's ashes into the Pacific, which, like, what does that say except, you know, either somehow I think I'm um, diffusing their spirit into the Pacific Ocean so they can go swim with the whales, which would be a very superstitious idea of the, the nature of the human soul and its the way it's related to nature. Or it would be simply, you know, disregarding the body as, at all as having any kind of intrinsic value or eternal value, whereas the Catholic position is the body is extremely valuable. It's united to Christ, uh, and the bodies of the saints are Im- imbued by the holiness of Christ and um, and are first in line, as it were, for the resurrection. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. 
Stacy writes in, just curious as to why there's so much involved for someone to become Catholic. My friend has six books to read along with 28 weeks of class. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So that's interesting. I've, I've, I've never encountered an RCIA class or an OCIA class that required uh, six books to be read. I, I, the, many weeks is normal, but the, the book reading, that, that's not as normal. But in terms of why, why is there so much preparation required to become a Catholic? It's because to become a Catholic is not just to change denominations. You know, within within modern evangelical Protestantism, there is a kind of consumerist attitude towards church affiliation. Well, you know, I like the preaching over here, but I like the worship over there. And, you know, we've decided to change churches because we moved. And that kind of casual relationship to one's congregation does not characterize adherence to the Catholic faith. It's not a matter of, well, you know, I like this style of liturgy or I like that priest. No, I'm 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 really committing myself to a total way of life in the world. And, uh, and it's a long-term commitment, like a marriage. And, um, you know, I mean, typically when people uh, uh, meet one another, we would kind of look askance if they got engaged and got married, you know, within the next two weeks. We, we usually see a little bit more preparation than that because this is a lifetime commitment. The church wants to make sure that you know what it is you're committing to. When you profess the faith, do you know the faith that you're professing? Uh, when you agree to live as a Catholic, do you know what that entails? Uh, there are some serious lifestyle changes that people have to make when they become Catholic. Are you up for the job? And that's the point of RCA is to make sure that you have the proper preparation to really live as a Catholic in the world, not just to join a new denomination, not just because you like a new style of worship or you know, maybe you like the Church Fathers or something, but um, I'm committed to being a fundamentally different kind of human being in the world. I see one major weakness in your analogy. Okay, what's that? It would take a whole lot more than six books for boys to understand girls or girls to understand boys. There you go. <laughs> um, Dan writes in, what's the purpose of blessing an object like a rosary? What is the effect of the blessing? Yeah, thanks. So um, the priestly blessing is uh, the what we call a sacramental, and blessed objects, by virtue of the priestly blessing, become sacramentals. A sacramental is not a sacrament. A sacramental is an object or or a, or an act like a like a priestly blessing that brings the object or the person to, within the orbit, as it were, of the church's intercessory power, and so it it makes it a kind of participant in the in the general intercession of the church, right, with on behalf of people with God. Um, and so, a blessed object becomes a kind of uh, static prayer, if you will. Right, so if I have a blessed rosary, um, the priest, in effect, is saying something like the following: You know, God, although not this exact words, but this is the sentiment. You know, God, when someone uses this rosary, may it be an occasion for them to draw closer to you and to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right, that seems like an intelligible prayer to me, Lord. Every time somebody walks over the threshold of my house, could I be a blessing to them? Could they be blessed by being here? There's no reason we can't attach a desire for blessing, for God's favor, to some specific object or some specific circumstance. Uh, that's what's going on in the blessing. But what's at root of it is the power of the priest to bless, who stands in a unique relationship, an intercessory relationship between the person and God. It's a Tuesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Just getting started. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Jose in San Antonio, Texas, and we'd love to hear from you. That number is 833-288-EWTN. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. 
Have you checked out Church Pop? It's uh, one of the newest. It's it's several years old now with, uh, under the EWTN umbrella, but it's uh, you know it's not whimsical, it's not irreverent, but it's a, a, a slightly more a, a slightly lighter take on the news from a Catholic perspective. Uh, very entertaining. You'll find things like uh, infographics that will explain an aspect of the faith, or you know, the, uh, an angle of, of someone's personal testimony regarding an issue that's going on in the culture. All sorts of great things every day, and you can find it all at churchpop. Excuse me, at churchpop.com. Uh, they're on all the social media platforms as well. And you can actually get an email like I do every morning from Church Pop, giving you kind of the uh, the key headline for the day. And uh, if you'd like to take part in that, simply log on to EWTN.com and click on subscriptions. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Jose was on hold yesterday at the end of the program, and he has been kind enough to call us back. He's in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jose, thanks so much for calling back. You're on with Dr. Andrews. Hello, and thank you for uh, taking my call, um, Doctor. Um, uh, before we continue, um, I was just wondering, I don't know if I've, I don't think I've heard anybody do this, but do you mind if I, like, recite this, uh, uh, a passage from Psalm 25 before we get started as a prayer? Um, well, it depends on how long it is. I would, know, we, we can handle about a verse. Let's not handle five verses, okay? No, 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 no. It's only one, one verse. Right, let's hear I, one I, verse. Like, yeah, it's um, um, lead me in your truth and teach me, um, for you are the God of my salvation. For I wait all the day long. That's that's it. Beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. What can this I do for it. you? Um, simply just, why is there no salvation outside of the Catholic Church? Um, yeah, and how certain are y'all, you know, according to the early church fathers and besides scripture, um, do y'all know for sure the saints hear us and Mary and so forth? Um, I grew up Catholic, I left the church, I didn't really have, you know, good uh, teaching about the whole history and the whole faith of it. Um, and I'm just trying to understand, man. Yeah, I, I'm sure, well, I can help you with that, absolutely. So, um, with regard to the question of salvation outside the Church, it's pretty clear, I think, from sacred Scripture, from the teaching of Christ and the Apostles, that Jesus intended to establish an institution. He said to St. Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my Church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What have you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And if you flip over to Matthew chapter 18, he's a little bit more specific in what that binding and loosing can look like, and he talks about the situation of a person who's caught in sin and a brother who finds him and uh, and admonishes him to shape up, and the guy won't listen. Jesus says, in that circumstance, you take it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, you kick him out. You treat him as a tax collector, uh, a sinner, and what if you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So he, there's, a, there's an institution there, that has a power to admit or exclude in a visible way, right? So it's, it's possible to be in, it's possible to be out, and that is by Jesus's own design. And we can see that dynamic played out in the rest of the New Testament. So 2 Corinthians 5, for example, Paul uh, discusses a situation where a fellow was involved in immoral behavior, and Paul tells the Corinthian church to kick him out. So it's, again, something you can be in, something you can be out. 
um, it also has a teaching authority. So, again, in sacred scripture, you look at Acts chapter 15, there's a matter of doctrinal and moral controversy, and the apostles and the elders meet in Jerusalem and come to a decision that they ascribe to the Holy Spirit that they then impose upon the universal church. So it's a, an authoritative ruling by a living magisterium about how Christians are to conduct themselves in their internal affairs. So all that implies a visible organization with a hierarchical and recognizable authority structure that can make authoritative decisions about what people are to do, what they're to believe, and who's to belong and who's not to belong. And so the presumption there is that the people who are being kicked out, like being kicked out's a bad thing. They need what the church has to offer uh, to be in union with God, and principally the right teaching and the sacraments, the means of grace. Um, and and that's all New Testament stuff here. Now, the way the Catholic Church interprets and lives this teaching is, do we think that just in virtue of being outside the Catholic Church is somebody necessarily damned? No, that's not the Catholic position. Uh, we teach, Catholics teach, that God offers sufficient grace to be saved, literally to every human being, whether they're Catholic or not. Um, and you can you can get to heaven if you're not a card-carrying Catholic. But the Catholic Church is the objective, visible means that God put into the world to display his teaching, his mercy, his judgment, and the objective means of grace in the sacraments. And so calling people into fellowship with the Catholic Church is calling them into a divinely sanctioned way of life that is best suited to bring us into union with God and loving union with one another. An analogy would be, you know, I can, um, I can probably get over an infection without antibiotics, or I might be able to get over an infection with antibiotics. Antibiotics is the is the is the appropriate way to do it. It's the 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 quick, right, easy way to do it. This person could come to salvation outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism, but Catholicism is the prescription that God put in the world to heal the the wound of sin. Um, we also teach that anyone who is saved, even if they're saved outside the church may be saved without the name Catholic, but they're not saved without the Church's intercession, right? That the, the Church is the, uh, uh, is the curator, if you will, of the divine plan of salvation in the world. And so people who are saved are saved through the grace of Christ that's mediated to the world through the Catholic Church. Um, so that's the position. You don't, you, Baptists can go to heaven. Uh, you're, you're, you're a little bit different position, though, if you, if you are in the Church— and this is what's viewed in the New Testament, of course. You're in the church, you believe the Catholic faith, and then you obstinately reject it or its teaching or its moral catechesis, and you turn your back on it and walk away, and you and you do so in disobedience to your own conscience. Well, that's that's a different situation. That's somebody that's putting themselves deliberately in violation of their own conscience, uh, which is, as Martin Luther, the Protestant theologian, said, to disobey conscience is neither right nor safe. Right, and that's the Catholic view as well. Um, now, what about the saints? Uh, why do we believe the saints uh, can pray for us, and, and how do we know that they hear us? Well, we, we believe that the saints pray for us because, again, sacred scripture teaches emphatically that they do. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, uh, clearly states that the saints offer our prayers to God. I mean, go read the text. There it is. Um, uh, in the Old Testament, 2 Maccabees, chapter 15, Another extremely clear incident of uh, of the saints in heaven praying on behalf of the church on earth. Uh, Book of Tobit, chapter twelve. 
um, uh, book of Second Kings, chapter 13, the relics of the saints shown to be efficacious uh, for miracles in the life of the faithful. So Old and New Testament, uh, we find this teaching. It's been a part of the Catholic tradition from the beginning, so it's also part of sacred tradition that goes back 2,000 years. And, and moreover, it accords with the spirit of charity that is the heart of the gospel. Um, you know, God didn't create the church so that we could live as, as isolated, individualistic atoms in, in, in total separation from one another, but that we could exemplify by our lives uh, the kind of charity and virtue that would ultimately come to characterize the eschaton. You know, when Isaiah writes about a time when the lion will lie down with the lamb and, and enmities will cease, we're supposed to exemplify that in a community, and that community is, um, is the Christian faithful, and so we, we have that, we express that kind of charity for one another, principally by our, our mutual intercession, by praying for one another. And so by distributing grace through the intercession of one to another, St. James says, pray for one another so that you can be healed. By doing it that way, it builds up charity in the body of Christ. So it's, it's intrinsic to the nature of redemption that we come to salvation in and through one another and not on our own. Right? How, how can you live the life of charity all by yourself? doesn't make any sense. Um, now, to the question, how do we know that they hear us? So, I don't think the Church has ever made the claim that we know that they hear us. That's really not necessary to say that in order to be a Catholic. We know that our prayers to the saints are efficacious. We know that our prayers to the saints uh, are a good idea. How do they work? Is it necessary for the saints in heaven to to actually hear our individual prayers in order for them to be effective, I don't think so. And let me give you an explanation of how that might work. Imagine St. Paul, for let's just pick a saint at random. Imagine St. Paul in heaven praying something like this. Dear God, please hear the prayers of everybody that asks my intercession today. That doesn't require Paul to know any specific intention. And yet he's still praying actively for those that ask for his help. That's intelligible. The Church doesn't say that it doesn't work that way. On the other hand, perhaps they do here. Perhaps they do here. Perhaps God, in some miracle of providence, makes my prayers directly known to the saint whose intercession I seek. He could do that. He's God. He could make that happen. But it's not necessary. Or maybe you mean more precisely, how do we even know that our prayers are answered? And on that, I would say, we don't know that even with respect to prayers to God the Father. You know, if I, if I pray to God and say, please help me succeed on this algebra test that I have on Friday, if I'm a high school student, and I do well on the algebra test, how, how do I know that it was a result of prayer and not because I studied really hard for the algebra test? That, that's a kind of question we can't answer. Um, we, we, we pray as an act of faith because of divine revelation. Right without without I mean, faith means that I don't have perfect knowledge. Saint Paul says, "I see as through a glass darkly." I make an act of faith in divine revelation to engage in spiritual exercises, the fruit of which I may not see in this life. I want you to grab one of these open phone lines at eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Al is in Moses Lake, Washington, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Al, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders. Thank you so much for taking my call, folks. And it's, 
It's, uh, I hope you can hear me okay. I'm going through the uh, pass here, uh, Vantage to Columbia River. I'm heading to, to uh, and I'm on a phone-free, uh, hands-free phone, so I'm good. But I hope I don't get cut off. Dr. Anders, my question is, uh, by the way, I love the show as well, a lot of knowledge information. My question is, my mom is 84, and, and um, she's on her last day. She's on her deathbed. But she, I was raised by parents, and, and I uh, love that they put the seed of Christ in us, but we were, we were brought up. A, and she is, uh, my grandfather was a someone's God minister, uh, pastor, and, and uh, grew up that, and I love it. But as I grew up, or I got out of the house and, and started seeing other other theology, I don't want to say theology, but other churches, like where are, who are all these other churches, Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic Church. I didn't know too many friends that were Catholic that didn't really say when they, we were growing up. But anyhow, I have a love and a deep, uh, what's the word, uh, just love the Catholic Church and uh, what what they are about. And I, I hear the show here. But anyhow, my mom, as she's getting ready to pass, she's got a few days left. What can I do? Because I know they're going to do the funeral. It's going to be through Assemblies of God. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, I, it was unclear to me. Did, uh, did you become a Catholic, or are you just someone who's kind of enamored of the Catholic faith? I, I'm a, I'm a youth training coordinator, so I work with a lot of youth, and I've I had a lot of youth pass on, and I've been to a lot of Catholic funerals or uh, other churches, but... Uh, but you're not I, a Catholic I just, yet. I am not, I'm not a Catholic. Okay, okay. And so I, I take it that, like, Catholicism as such is off the table for your mother. She's got no interest in being Catholic, right? No, and, and, and she can't make that call anymore. She's, she's on her deathbed, and, but no... But I want to know what I can okay, okay. When, when we have her funeral for her. Okay, okay. Oh, funeral, that's different. Okay. Well, what, first of all, I was going to say that when, when someone is not disposed to become a Catholic, um, and so that's that option's off the table, uh, I'd like to take a page out of Mother Teresa's playbook. You know, if you know Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she dealt with a lot of dying people who were not Catholics, and she explicitly was not trying to proselytize this proselytize them. Her goal was not to make them Catholic. Her goal was to help them find peace with God in whatever tradition they lived, right? And so that might mean, for her, it meant dealing with a lot of Hindus. And the way she functioned was, you know, to help them try to work out within their own soul what the kinks were, maybe maybe unforgiveness against a relative, for example. How could I maybe help this person come to to loving acceptance of the people in their life that maybe they had a grudge against? That sort of thing is uh, makes a lot of sense, you know. And to be sure, have opportunity to say everything that you want to say, and and uh, and reconcile with uh, you know with people that you need to reconcile with. All that I think is tremendously important for the one dying and for the ones that are staying around as well. Um, when you talk about the uh, the actual funeral, uh, once she passes, then uh, if uh, if if her tradition is the assemblies of God, and and the funeral arrangements are going to be made within the assemblies of God, I mean I I think you're going to have to concede um, the the ceremony as it's typically practiced within that tradition, right? Otherwise, you'd be probably making a lot of waves if you if you come in and, and ask to do things differently, and that's okay. I mean, that that's fine. You, you can let her have the funeral that she would want to have or that your father would want her to have, um, and, um, and, and yeah, I mean, the, at this point, there's no point in trying to—the uh, funeral is not the occasion for making a stand on, on a, you know, some kind of theological issue. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had, um, I had a relative— uh, uh, who died a few years ago, and um, there was kind of a mix of traditions pregnant, present at the at the rite at the funeral, and uh, 
let's just say one a member of one tradition that was not Catholic decided to use it as an as an occasion to get on a stump and give a speech and make a point, and it did not go down well. God bless you, Alan. One thing you've done by calling today is we'll have a lot of our listeners will be praying for your family. Um, it's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. Wide open phone lines for you at EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jacqueline David is watching us on YouTube, and she says, Can a home be blessed by a Catholic priest if one of my parents blessed it years ago? How often can one bless a home? Um, Yeah, thanks. Uh, You can absolutely have your home blessed, and you can have your home blessed more than once. And as far as the question, how often can you have it blessed, that really means how often can you get a priest to come, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's no limit, honestly, to the number of times you could have your home blessed, although it would, be, it would be odious, I think, to have it blessed once a week. You know, a lot of people will ask for a blessing of their house once a year. Um, it's not like it wears off, you know, I mean, it really doesn't. So um, there's no necessity to do that. Um, sometimes, uh, if people have home, had their home blessed and then they, they, they are, they fear or are concerned that it may have become desecrated in some way, maybe some horrible act was performed there, some immoral act or a superstitious act, they might choose to have it blessed another time. And others, as I said, like to maybe do it annually. Um, so yeah, there's no, really no limit. And, uh, and, but also no necessity. If you have it done once, you, you could potentially be good forever. I have an email here from um, Ray, and he says, Recently you were discussing baptism with a lady who didn't know if her husband was properly baptized. Where does baptism by desire come into play, or is there such a thing? Yeah, absolutely. There is such a thing as baptism by desire, but it doesn't, it doesn't supplant sacramental baptism. So baptism by desire really comes in retrospectively in consideration of someone that may die without the benefit of water baptism. And we would we could say, well, you know, that person may not be lost because of the baptism of desire. Um, however, baptism is not just a private act between the soul and God. It's also a public rite that brings one into a public relationship with the Catholic Church, and for that the sacrament is necessary. And so someone may have the grace of baptism in their soul through desire, um, but if occasion presents itself for them to receive the physical sacrament, they should do so. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Maybe there's one particular issue that you've always wondered about. Give us a call and let us hash it out at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Robert says, I don't think this, but I'm curious as to what would have need what would have needed to happen for Luther or any of the other reformers to be treated as just another apostle. Seems to me that Paul was a Jew that began preaching a pretty radical doctrine after his vision. Couldn't you use the same reasoning that leads you to dismiss the reformers on Paul and his teaching? Um, let me see if I get this straight. So your point is that when St. Paul began to preach, his doctrine was conceived as more or less radical by conservative elements that rejected him or responded uh, uh, antagonistically to him even though Paul was a legitimate apostle, 
couldn't the same thing be said of, say, Luther or Calvin? Couldn't they be conceived of figures like Paul who were, who were preaching a radical doctrine that was unpalatable to conservative elements, but they were genuinely spokespersons for God? Well, that exact argument was made by members of the Reformation Party um, explicitly. So, so um, um, uh, uh, Luther's protege in the Lutheran Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, um, referred to Luther as an apostle. Um, John Calvin once referred to Luther as an apostle. Um, Calvin himself had a a very uh, well articulated prophetic self consciousness. He he saw himself as having the mantle of a prophet about him. Um, uh, uh, Theodor Beza, his successor in Geneva, saw Calvin as a prophetic character, operating very much like an Old Testament prophet. Um, there's an article in the journal Church History by Max Ingemar entitled Prophet Without a Prophecy, which details specifically this prophetic self-consciousness that, that Calvin had. So that, that very much was part of the polemics at the time, and something that Catholics challenged them on and pushed back and said, no, you're not a prophet, you're not an apostle, and here's why. First of all, with respect to the apostolic office, um, the office of the apostle is foundational, the book of Ephesians says that the church is established on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Uh, apostles were people that were sent directly by Christ, either from um, their association with him, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the incarnate Lord, or through visionary experiences Paul had. But of course, Paul's claim to apostleship was validated by Jesus's living associates. Peter, James, and John in particular gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. So those that knew Christ and lived with him and were specifically commissioned and sent by him validated Paul's claim to apostolic authority. So um, who validates Luther's claim to apostolic authority? Uh, clearly not the successors to the apostles, because those are the Catholic bishops. I and mean, that's precisely the claim, right? The Catholic claim is that apostolic authority is passed on by, by apostolic succession. This is a charism that church possesses, and the apostles and their successors clearly did not recognize Luther's apostolic authority. Um, you know, with respect to the prophetic claim, um, the, uh, the Catholic polemicists of the time called on the reformers to perform miracles, said, okay, the, the prophets and the apostles validated their supernatural authority by performing miracles. Let's see some. Like, come on, put up or shut up, guy. And, of course, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Protestants didn't do so and, and denied that they, that they ought to. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think there's other reasons to reject the claim as well. So, first of all, anybody can say I'm a prophet. And, if, of course, we've, we've had, I mean, everybody from Joseph Smith to Muhammad, you know, to, to your next-door neighbor— can claim to speak for God. How are you going to validate that claim? How are you going to? How do you assess claims of divine revelation? Um, well, uh, so there's a non-Catholic thinker named Josiah Royce uh, who wrote a book called Sources of Religious Insight in the 19th Century. He was a friend of um, William James, the famous Harvard psychologist. And although Royce was no Catholic and said a lot of things that probably would not drive with Catholicism, he made one point about identifying a legitimate revelation. And it essentially went like this. Anyone that, clums, anyone that comes with a claim of revelation, um, that claim should be evaluated against the standard of whether or not what they teach actually serves the human good and solves a perennial, genuine human problem. And, and you know, does it accord with 
the, the rational nature of the human person. And that's not the only criteria, but it's one, if, if you know, if you, like if somebody comes and says to you, two plus two equals five, uh, we have a prima facie reason for rejecting their, their purported revelation. And I would maintain that Lutheranism and Calvinism do just that, that effectively they teach that two plus two equals five. Um, Luther said that reason was a whore and the worst enemy of truth. And in Bondage of the Will, which he wrote in 1525, when specifically confronted with the irrationality of his doctrine of divine predestination, uh, Luther took the position that his Christian doctrine needed, it had to be of necessity irrational, and that, that rational doctrine could not be divine, and that anything that God said ha could not accord with human reason or human flourishing. So it was an, it was an avowedly absurdist doctrine. Um, Calvin, in uh, Book 3 of the Institutes, when he talks about predestination, makes a very similar argument about God's justice being utterly incomprehensible to us. Now, if you come and tell me that you have a doctrine that you boast is irrational and absurd, then there is literally at that point no reason, in quotes, to accept it. Right? There's, there's nothing other than propaganda and manipulation as a motive to accept such a doctrine. There is no rational foundation for it whatsoever at all. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Marilyn, a first-time caller in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on Holy Family Radio. Marilyn, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Yes, I was wondering if it's proper to have um, a relic displayed in your home and how that's to be. I know probably a reliquary, but is it proper to place it on a picture of a loved one or a Catholic priest, or is the best thing is to return them to a Catholic church? Yeah, thank you. You absolutely are permitted to keep relics in your home. I have one, uh, only one. Uh, some people have many. And it's, you know it should be in the proper reliquary, and and the best way to display them would be a place where they could receive respectful veneration. So have at it. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Next up is John in Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. John, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yeah, hi. I was uh, <clears throat> calling uh, a week or two ago, I was listening, and Dr. Anders explained about uh, original sin being a deprivation of grace and not something that's put on us. Um, and so when Adam and Eve fell, they fell from their state of original justice. Um, and then through baptism, we're restored with that grace, or infused with that grace again to, that makes us right with God. But then we battle, um, so that, that, that's taking care of original sin, if I understand that right, but then how is that, are we restored to that same sort of sense of original justice that Adam and Eve were, or, or where does the, the yeah. idea of then we have to continue to battle our flesh? Sure, sure. Um, the human the nature, I guess, if you will, yeah, and how that works in relation yep, to that. Yep, I got it. So Adam and Eve uh, were created with original justice, but they also had what are called the preternatural gifts. And the preternatural gifts were uh, integrity, which means that their passions were under the control of their reason. They had immortality, um, and they had infused knowledge. So we are restored to the state of sanctifying grace, and so there is justice in our souls. Um, we do not regain the preternatural gifts immediately. 
Right. And so, so we don't have uh, the gift of perfect integrity, for example. And thus, we have what are called the wounds of original sin. Not original sin, but the wounds of original sin, which are concupiscence, this immoderate desire for bodily pleasure, um, moral weakness, um, uh, what theologians call malice. Malice does not mean hatefulness towards another person. It's more like egotism. Um, and then ignorance. And so the infusion of sanctifying grace does not immediately eliminate the wounds of original sin. And so we have something to do. Like there is a project of human life, and it is to battle against the wounds of original sin and to grow in virtue. And virtues are acquired through practice and habit, um, supernatural and natural. Uh, and uh, eventually, if we come to sanctity, um, the saints are those that have really extirpated sin, and have come to align their wills entirely with the will of God and to something much more like the state of Adam and Eve, right, by the time they get to the end of their road. But for most of us, that's that may not happen in this lifetime at all. Um, and if it does, it's going to happen after a long, hard battle. Barbara is in Gulfport, Mississippi. She is listening to us on Fire TV today. Barbara, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you, thank you. Um... I'm just wondering what is so compelling about John Wesley that someone who has been born and reared a Catholic after reading John Wesley has decided that they are definitely a Methodist. Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, I've read Wesley, and I am very safely Catholic. So I personally found Wesley interesting. I didn't find Wesley so compelling that I wanted to jump ship and, and become a Methodist, to be sure. Um, and, uh, and so it's a little bit, I can't, I can't speak from a position of perfect sympathy with someone that does that, but here are some of the things about Wesley that I think are interesting, at least historically, and why he was compelling to many of his contemporaries. So Wesley was an evangelical. He believed in the new birth. He believed in being born again. Um, he was part of the revivalist movement. Um, so he, he revivalism basically is an, is a version of Protestantism that advocates, uh, sort of a dramatic emotional response to God, that, that this turning to God of conversion, um, it, it can be psychologically overpowering and, and really seeks out those kinds of experiences. Um, that's very attractive to people. Revivalism is attractive. I mean, I've, I've participated in a number of revival-type events in my life before I was Catholic, and they can be psychologically uh, overpowering. And, and you know, anyone who's, who's ever enjoyed a football game or a concert or a rock concert knows the power of, of, uh, of, of group um, um, ecstasy and how that can sort of wash over you and have a seemingly transformative effect. Um, about, what was it, about a year ago, I guess now, uh, Asbury University in Kentucky, which is a Wesleyan school, um, had a celebrated revival that lasted, oh, I don't know, about a week. And uh, they do these, you know, once every couple of decades. There was a famous revival at Asbury in the 1970s, and so they always kind of try to recapitulate that experience. So that's that's very attractive. Um, Wesley organized his converts into little conventuals, conventicles, little small group meetings, um, and sought to build fellowship among people of like mind. That's attractive. Wesley put a huge emphasis on... Uh, the moral life and on care for the poor and Methodism in, in, in general has had a high regard for social action. So Methodists were deeply involved in things like the abolition movement uh, during the war years. 
Um, and uh, and to this day, the United Methodist Church, for example, is very interested in social justice issues. That's all also very attractive. So I think that someone who was attracted to Protestant doctrine in general, right, and the promise of justification by faith alone, uh, revivalism, conversionistic religion, social concern, um, and uh, and if there was one thing about Methodism that uh, that I do prefer to Catholic life, it would be their hymnody, right? I mean, Charles Wesley, John's brother, was one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of Christianity, and uh, and even Catholics still sing his hymns today. I mean, there's absolutely fantastic hymnody in the Methodist tradition. I'm kind of teasing, obviously, when I say it. I think it's better than the Catholic. Uh, it, it may be better than some Catholic parish. We have plenty of good hymns in the Catholic tradition, but but golly, those uh, those Methodist hymns are something else. But again, for me personally, I, I, I appreciate Wesley. I have respect for him, but certainly not compelling enough for me to want to leave the church that Christ founded. You know, David, speak just briefly. You mentioned one of the things, one of the characteristics you mentioned was 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 small groups, basically. And even if you look around the Catholic space, where there have been big uh, upticks in in membership at whether it be a a Catholic university ministry or or a parish, it seems like one of the common denominators of all of those situations is small groups. Absolutely, and you know, I, I know Catholics today that see a push for small group ministry as Protestant, and they they push back against it, saying, "Hey, it's a Protestant thing. We don't we don't do small groups." And and of course that's false. Um, Catholics invented small groups. They invented them in the first century, and 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 in the Middle Ages, the most characteristic expression of Catholic piety, the most characteristic expression of Catholic piety, according to the medievalist John Bossy, was the confraternity, which was effectively a small group of lay Catholics that would gather together for devotional practices. It was it was everywhere in in the Catholic world. Um, and and so versions of that have 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 been part of Catholic life forever and ever and ever, and uh, and it, it stands to reason that it's attractive. Um, I, I read a study recently by a, a, a Protestant sociologist measuring the strength of religious commitment against one's social embeddedness in one's congregation, and what it looked at was you know are, do you believe what your church teaches yes or no? How many of your friends go to church with you? And, and the more your friend group is drawn from your church group, the more likely you are to believe the doctrine of that church. That makes perfect sense to me. It's, 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 how, it's how we function. But we need to have our faith and our doctrine reinforced through relationships. And w- without that, we tend to wither and die. And so, yeah, you're right. It's, 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 it's an incredibly important part of, of human life and human dynamic, and it's absolutely related to the fabric of our Christianity, which is supposed to manifest in charity. We've got a great new program on the weekends called Podcast Central. This week we're featuring the Catholic Man Show at Podcast Central. It's hosted by Adam Minahan and David Niles. It's real, relatable, and often comical, and it's designed especially for men, and it promotes the lost art of living virtuously, fellas. You can hear the Catholic Man Show as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation all in one place. They're all free at EWTN's Podcast Central. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Jonathan is up next, a first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jonathan, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yeah, uh, hi, Dr. Anders. Um I was just wondering that the first century 
apostles um, and Paul, uh, they're, um, they had a tough business to try to convert and bring in and spreading the gospel from one end of the earth to the other, uh, as Jesus has uh, instructed them. Uh, how tough is it for them during the Roman Empire to convert the Jews, and uh, at least whether locally in, in Judea or outside? Um, and was it, were they still, I mean, was it a stumbling block then and still today for them uh, to believe in the Messiahship of Jesus? Because um, I have Jewish friends, and sometimes when I talk about, I visit, you know, uh, Jerusalem and the Sepulchre, and, you know, and geez, they just kind of look at me like, you know, okay, that's great. It's like, you know, it, it's not existent for them. So I guess my question is that, um, will, uh, will they have a tough time uh, today as they would back then? And, and is the five books of the Torah, is it still a stumbling block for them, and why? Why is that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Sure. So the New Testament details the history of the infant church, and absolutely, it was extremely difficult for the apostles to get a hearing in the wider Jewish community. Um, they didn't, by and large, and and most most Jews of the time did not become believers in Jesus's messiahship. I mean, a lot did, and there's a tradition of Jewish Christianity in the first century, uh, but uh, but it wasn't the majority, not not by a long shot. And and Paul. Book of Acts tells us explicitly Paul would go to the synagogues and he would proclaim Christ and usually got a cold hearing, and then he would turn to uh, the Gentiles and he he got a lot of his converts from Gentiles who believed in the God of Abraham but had not submitted to circumcision, and since his message was hey you can be a Christian without submitting to circumcision they they were all good with that they were already kind of positively inclined towards. Um, the God of the Old Testament, they just didn't want to become ethnically Jews, and, and that was how Christianity was presented to the Gentile world. And it's it's in that message, it was you know Paul's gospel that he preached, that the Gentile world uh, turned overwhelmingly to, to Christ. Um, as far as why did Jewish contemporaries not accept the message that Jesus was the Messiah, I think for reasons very similar to why many Jews do not today, in that the Old Testament, speaking about the coming kingdom of God— talked about cosmic transformations that would eliminate suffering and evil and bring universal justice. And and Jews today and Jews in the first century said that didn't happen. That was their perspective. You know, look, I, I'm not seeing the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in this person of Jesus. Worse, from their point of view, uh, and this we ask would it be harder today, I think it would be harder today because we've had 2,000 years of history between and most Jews today think of Christianity or have experienced Christianity as a source of oppression, as, as something that persecuted Jews and discriminated against them, and and um, and and some of them would make the claim it was you know more or less implicated even in extreme outcomes like the Holocaust. So that you're not you're not you don't get a friendly hearing from people uh, when they view you as having you know put their ancestors to death. That's not that's not a really good uh, basis for a conversation or a friendship. And so you know in contemporary situation, the Catholic Church. Has has said our goal is not to proselytize Jews, uh, and certainly not to condemn them, and that uh, God's uh, God's promise and call are irrevocable, and the Jews still have a place in the outworking of divine providence and God's salvific plan. And while we do think that that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and Christianity the fulfillment of of Old Testament expectation, um, I can respect the integrity of the Jewish conscience, and I can certainly. Uh, try to see the thing from their point of view and understand why Christianity would be unpalatable. And so my response to that is to 
live in contradiction to the stereotype of Christianity with which they've been raised, right? So if they have grown up thinking of Christians as narrow-minded, uh, anti-Semitic bigots, then my goal is to not be a narrow-minded, anti-Semitic bigot, but to express the genuine love and charity of Christ to all people, Jews included. David, in just a few seconds that we have left here, Charles in Portland, Oregon, listening on Modern Day E-Radio, wants to know why the church doesn't teach more about the history of the church. Hmm, good question. I'm part of the church. I teach about church history. So, uh, you know, I'm puzzled. I mean, every Catholic university on the planet is going to have extensive lessons in church history. Um, you know, the uh, priests have to take courses in church history. Uh, many RCA classes have at least a few sections on church history. So I'm not I'm not sure where this lack of pedagogy on church history is being perceived. I mean, obviously in the local parish, you might not have a course offered on church history. If there's not one in your parish, my recommendation is start one. Um, ask the priest if you can teach an adult education class and go out and get some textbooks and some church fathers and some like-minded people to get together and start studying it together. When you see a problem, go be the solution. Um, but as far as the church universally, I think we're pretty big on history. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI gave, for several years, a series of Wednesday audiences specifically on church history and, and some of the great thinkers and figures of uh, the Catholic uh, centuries. So uh, I recommend that catechesis uh, wholeheartedly. It's just fantastic stuff. So, yeah, I, um, history brought me to the Catholic Church, and I've never stopped teaching it. Christine wants to know, uh, watching on YouTube, how can I learn more about the Catholic view of predestination? Yeah, so one, uh, uh, it's a, it has a point of view, but Gary Gu Lagrange's book, Predestination, will give you uh, a, the, the Dominican Catholic view on predestination. Um, Professor Larry Feingold, um, in his uh, lectures on the history of uh, the Old Testament, Israel, and the Church, has uh, a really good lecture on predestination. It's available online that will give you a different point of view from Gary Gu Lagrange. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.